Welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcast at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can subscribe on Podbeam, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at erik.anderson at nllutheran.com. Let's jump into our time together in the sermon. And before, uh, before we jump into the sermon, um, I do want to give you guys uh, an exciting announcement um, that I found out recently that I'm very pleased uh, to give to you guys. There's going to be a new thing in our community in 2021, and it's uh, one of these. Did you guys think I was going to tell you that we were pregnant? We're not pregnant. I would be having an anxiety attack if we were. All right. We're getting one of these next year here in Sterling. Do you know, uh, have you heard about this project that's starting here? It's kind of getting around the rumor mill. Do you guys know what this is? This is called a roundabout. This is called a roundabout. There's one getting uh, installed here next to Halo, next to that industrial park. And uh, I've talked to a handful of you guys about this project. It's kind of been brought up. And uh, the people that I've talked to here in our congregation, just a few, uh, have been kind of apprehensive about the whole thing. Not super excited about having a roundabout here in town. Um, which I think is really interesting. I, I grew up in, uh, in the city, and where the city that I grew up in, we have lots of roundabouts, and I love them. I grew up driving around roundabouts. I think they're fantastic. And I, my wife, my family, and I, we live in Dixon, and I have to drive on Lynn Boulevard every day coming into work, and there's like 800 stop signs on Lynn Boulevard. I wish they were all roundabouts. That would make my commute time so much less if they were roundabouts. But it's interesting, Sarah and I, we've uh, lived and we've worked in several small towns, even though we're both from cities, uh, in our careers as pastors and and, uh, in our college career as well. We went to a college in a town that was about 15,000, about what Dixon is now where we live. Uh, We served, our first church was in a community of 5,000, and the whole county was only 15,000 people. And it, it seems... It seems to me that every small town I've been in, whenever roundabouts get brought up, nobody likes them. It's like this small town, big city thing that I think is really interesting. And I had an epiphany about it uh, a while ago, and I think it's actually a cultural thing. I think that in a city like I grew up in, I grew up driving around roundabouts. I learned how to drive around roundabouts. So I was like born and bred in roundabouts, and it was no problem. I have no problem operating them. I understand how they work. Three lanes, four lanes, it doesn't matter. I get it. I know where I'm going. I know how to get there. I know how to navigate them safely. But in smaller communities where you don't have roundabouts, it's just like, it's like you don't know them yet. You know, you haven't learned how to use the roundabout. So you enter into a roundabout and there's like eight signs up about which lanes you can turn in, which lanes you can't, which lanes go on to which exit. And I I understand why that can be maybe a little bit uh, scary to go into. But I think it's a cultural thing. Like I think that if you just give it some time, you'll find that roundabouts really are far superior to four-way stops. 
But I think this works the other way too. So for example, maybe if you were somebody living in a city and you moved out here to the Sauk Valley and you get to this point in mid-September where all of a sudden there's all this dust everywhere and your allergies are starting to act up and your nose is getting clogged and you're coughing a lot and especially in the coronavirus, you don't want to be coughing, right? Because everyone looks at you kind of funny. You may not understand why all of a sudden in mid-September there's all this dust and the sky is kind of hazy and your allergies are acting up. But if you're from a small town, you know that harvest starts around mid-September. And you know that all the combines are out picking the corn and picking the soybeans and it's kicking up all that dust. When if you're from a small community or you live in a small community, you're used to it. You're used to the excitement of harvest and how every conversation you have with everybody is about harvest from September to December. That's all we talk about. Right? Because that's what small towns do. You're just kind of used to it. It's part of the culture. And if you're from a city, it may seem kind of strange or weird. You don't know why all of a sudden your allergies are acting up, those types of things. I think it's kind of a cultural thing. Well, today, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about these kinds of cultural things. Because there are a few passages in Scripture that are just weird. And when I read the Scripture earlier, and I looked up after I read it, some of your eyes were about that big. We read through Revelation 13, talking about beasts and the mark of the beast, right? It was like deer in headlights for some of you because that passage seems kind of weird, and it is for us. So what we're gonna do today is we're gonna take a little bit of time and we're gonna look into the culture and we're gonna kind of swim around in scripture for a little bit to figure out what in the world is going on in Revelation 13, because we have these strange passages that just don't make any sense to us. And this is one of them. We hear about this beast, uh, and there's actually two beasts referenced in this passage, but this one, there's just one here. The beast causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell who does not have the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let anyone who understands calculate the number of the beast. But calculate? Why do we need to calculate a number? For it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. So we get into this passage, and I think it may feel a little bit like a roundabout, right? There are all these signs. We don't quite understand what's going on here, which way we need to turn. Do we go into the far lane, the middle lane, but I need to get exit three, so do, Right? It's kind of strange, and so we're going to take some time, and we're just going to dig in and spend a little bit of time on this passage, and uh, the question that we have with the, that, that goes along with this is, how do I know I haven't already received the mark of the beast? How do I know I haven't already done these things that the beast wants me to? That was a question that was posed, and we're going to dig into Scripture, and we're going to answer that. As we enter into Scripture... I want to give a couple caveats because uh, I've already had a good conversation with someone this morning who disagreed with me about how to read Revelation. And I'm going to, so I'm going to give a couple caveats about how we read the Bible um, as Lutherans and how we read the Bible here at New Life. And our conviction is, as Lutherans and here at New Life, that the Bible can and should stand on its own. Okay? So we believe that the Bible is sufficient it is inspired, and it is enough to tell us how to read and understand the Bible. This is my conviction, 
is that you do not need to be smart and you do not need to be educated to understand scripture, but you do need to work hard. It takes time and it takes effort, but you do not need to have an education to understand it. So this is what I mean. There was a gentleman at our first church that Sarah and I uh, worked at, and this guy, he's amazing. I love him so much, but he's not what we would call smart, right? He's just a good old boy, good old Wisconsin boy. I don't even know if he finished high school, but he was a cheese packer and a yogurt packer. I mean, he was just a blue collar guy. Nothing extraordinary about him, no extra schooling, no nothing. But he knew the Bible better than anybody I had ever met, way more than than I know the Bible. And it's because he had spent 60 years of his life, by the time we we knew him, he had spent 60 years of his life reading and rereading and just absorbing the scripture. And this is how scripture asks us to read it. We can't, we shouldn't bully scripture. We shouldn't dive into a passage and kind of insert our own 21st century or 20th century way of thinking about things. We can't just dive into scripture and bully it around. We have to go into the deep end and we have to begin swimming in it. It's kind of like, kind of like a roundabout. Once you drive around a roundabout a few times, you kind of get, you'll get used to it and you'll realize that it's way better than a four-way stop, right? So that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna start driving into that roundabout. We're just gonna take our time. We're gonna kind of learn what scripture, how scripture talks about itself. We're gonna learn some of those things. And so I'm gonna give you guys an image to think about. Oh, excuse me. I'm gonna give you guys an image to think about uh, how we're gonna be thinking about this process. And I want you guys to, to imagine you have a pair of glasses that help you read the Bible as if you lived in the first century and you were a Jew, okay? So we're gonna just put on these glasses, we're gonna dive into the first century culture, we're gonna dive into the biblical culture and understand it a little bit more. Because when we read Revelation, when you and I read Revelation 13 and I hear about this mark of the beast that's on my hand or on the forehead, um, I think of pastors that I've heard in the past, and I've heard pastors say these types of things, that this mark of the beast is an actual kind of like physical thing that gets inserted into your hand, like a microchip. Or I've heard someone say that cell phones are the mark of the beast because they have numbers on them and we have them in our hand or we put them on our head, which I think that sounds a little silly, but that's all right. Or we may hear that the mark of the beast is a vaccine, that some rich guy wants to insert microchips so that they can track where we're going, right? Or I've heard this too, the mark of the beast is a credit card because it has numbers on it. And when you buy things and sell things with it, it tracks where you are, it knows who you are. We, there are pastors and teachers who teach this kind of interpretation, and so we have all these ideas swirling in our head. How do I know that the credit card isn't the mark of the beast? How do I know a cell phone isn't the mark of the beast? My argument is, if we dive into the biblical, uh, the how scripture talks about itself, if we dive into the culture, we're gonna find that probably you don't have the mark of the beast. You might, but you probably don't, and the mark of the beast is much more dangerous and much more real than a credit card or a cell phone or a microchip implanted. But we have to first put on our first century Jewish glasses because the Bible, we're gonna get it here into the passage here in just a sec, but the Bible is written for us. It is God's inspired word that is given to us. It is written for us on our behalf. 
God has given it to us and it gives us everything we need to be holy and to live the Christian life. But the Bible was not written to us. There were specific people in specific places that it was written to. It was given to us and written for our benefit, but we have to understand that there are particular cultural concepts and ideas that the Bible has that seem foreign to us. And that's what we're gonna see here in this passage on Revelation. So here it is again, we're not gonna read it through one more time. I just want you guys to have it in front of you so you can continue to reference it. So we have this idea of being marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell who does not have the mark. The book of Revelation is a long, big, sprawling book that has these very complex, uh, very hard to understand images, including things like dragons, beasts, um, there are prostitutes that are riding the dragons. I mean, it's absolutely insane as we read through it if we have the 21st century mindset. But when John received this vision from the Lord, when he received these images, he was, we assume that he was worshiping when he received these images. So be careful when you worship, right? Because you, you might get struck with a vision. But we re he received these images, these visions. When he received them, he would have been well aware of this type of literature, of this type of image that he was receiving. Because there were other types of images and visions that were like this. We have some in the Old Testament. The prophet Daniel, we have some in the prophet Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and these are called um, apocalypses. Maybe you've heard of the term apocalyptic. When we hear that word, we think of the end of the world, right? We have lots of movies and there are lots of preachers who talk about the end of the world. But in the Jewish mindset, uh, the idea of an apocalypse actually means an unveiling. It literally means to like, draw the curtain and open up and reveal something. So when John received these images and visions, he may have been thinking about the future, but he was also and probably primarily thinking about the present, his own time. Because what God was doing was opening up the veil, opening up the blinds so that John could see the world for what it really was. So John, as he looked out into the vision, he could see the beasts that are behind some of the human emperors that were violent and violently overtaking people. He could see the enemy. He could see the Satan working as the dragon in the background. He was seeing these images that represented and were different things. This was an image, a vision that he was receiving about the world around him. And what we know is that in the apocalyptic kind of writing, like in Daniel, go back and read the last three chapters of Daniel, it's crazy. It's it sounds just like Revelation. Read some of Ezekiel and some of Jeremiah and Isaiah, you'll see some of these passages that are very strange to us. And what we see is that in apocalyptic writing, not only when the person received a vision did it mean something particular to their time, but as the Israelites looked back and read the last three chapters of Daniel, they could see these apocalypses happening again and again and again. That the beasts in Daniel did not only represent one person, but actually several types of people, several leaders, several governments. It wasn't just one thing, but it was actually several things. 
And we see that in the same thing with the revelation. I imagine and I believe that as John received that revelation, the beast and the dragon and all these crazy images had specific correspondences with his world, but also as Christians have looked back, every single generation of Christians has seen themselves in the revelation. And that's okay, because that's how apocalyptic literature works. It unfolds in front of us and we can see ourselves in it. That's why it uses these crazy images, because it helps us enter, it helps us see ourselves in this grand drama of God defeating the enemy and establishing his new heaven and his new earth. Jesus himself quotes Daniel 7. I think it's in Matthew 23, um, but it might be a little bit later. Uh, but I think it's in Matthew 23. But Jesus actually quotes Daniel. He quotes one of these apocalyptic passages. And in Daniel, there's a human person who defeats the beast and then ascends into heaven and sits on God's throne. We're not sure if it's like he is God or if he's like sitting next to God, if there's like a second throne. We don't really know. The images aren't exactly clear, but there's a human person who ascends into heaven and sits on God's throne. And God is speaking to the chief priests and the rulers, and he says to them, from this moment on, this is right before he's crucified. He says, from this moment on, you will see the Son of Man ascended into heaven and sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Now, Jesus knew that these chief priests were not going to see him ascending into heaven literally like he did later, right? At the beginning of Acts. But it seems like Jesus was referencing his crucifixion. That it was actually his crucifixion that was part of this ascension into heaven and not the literal ascension that would happen later. So for Jesus, reading these apocalyptic texts did not mean the way that we think about uh, when we read a book or we read an article or a newspaper article, what we want is we want it kind of like a journalistic, objective, facts-based kind of approach, right? For Jesus, when he read the apocalypses, he wasn't reading it as if it were a newspaper. He was reading it as if it were themes, inspired images and themes that he can see himself in and that meant more than they originally intended, or it seemed like they originally intended. So for Jesus, reading this kind of literature was not like reading a newspaper, but was actually to help change the way he saw the world. And then he knew he was the human one who was going to ascend into heaven, but that ascension was his crucifixion, not just his actual ascension later. Whew, okay, you guys good so far? Okay. I know, guys, we are like right in the middle of the roundabout. We're in lane three. We need to get over to lane one because we got to exit right away, okay? That's, where, that's what we're doing right now. So I know that this is deep. We're right in the deep end, but trust me, it's going to pay off, okay? So trust me, it's going to pay off. So when Jesus reads these apocalyptic, this kind of apocalyptic literature that Revelation is, he reads it thematically. He sees these images and these, uh, these words and these numbers, they represent one thing, but they also can represent more than one thing. But they certainly aren't designed or meant to be read as if we're reading a newspaper. They're themes that we can see ourselves and see our world in right now. So in the first century Jewish mindset, there are not one-to-one -one correspondences between 
a beast, and a particular person. So in a first century Jewish mindset, they would not have heard about the mark of the beast and thought about a literal thing that was gonna be put on your hand or into your forehead. That's not how they would have read it. In fact, that reading of scripture is kind of new. It's actually only in the last 60 years or so that people have been reading the Bible that way. And in 2,000 years of Christian history, that's a little baby idea. That's not a fully formed idea yet. So Christians across the ages and scripture itself does not demand this kind of reading. Now, you can feel what you feel about microchips implanted into your hands. I have my opinions and I'll pass, right? So you feel how you feel about those things. But when we hear about the mark of the beast, we should not be thinking about this. Well, Pastor Eric, then what should we be thinking about? What should we be thinking about? Well, if we have taken the time and we have been bathing in scripture, if we've been learning the scripture, when we hear about the mark of the beast, there's actually another scripture that might pop into your head. This is from Deuteronomy chapter six. This is maybe the most important prayer or the most important like creed that we have in the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, this is called the Shema. Shema is Hebrew for listen, listen up. Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Keep these words that I'm commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand and fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorpost of your house and your gates. Anything sound familiar there from what we read in Revelation 13? So this is the most important uh, creed of the Old Testament. It's probably the most important prayer of the Old Testament that we have. And you might have even seen uh, Jewish people to this day, especially Orthodox Jews, still do this for sure. Um, but certainly back in Jesus' time, most Jews would have practiced this way. When it says that uh, when God commands that they bind this agreement, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is our God. He, he is the only God for us. It's kind of an agreement, a creed. God demands that they bind them onto their arms, on their hands. And so what they did is that they would actually write this prayer, Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohinu, right? They would write the Hebrew prayer out on a piece of cloth and, or on a leather strap, and they would wrap it on their arms, and they would hold it in their hand while they were praying. And they would also have a little cube that they would have the prayer in, and they would strap it to their forehead. So while they were praying, they had the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is our Lord alone. They would have it in their hand and they would have it on their forehead. So if you're a 21st century Christian and you don't know about this prayer, you read Revelation 13 and you immediately think what? Credit card, microchip, cell phone, right, whatever. But if you're a first century Jew and you hear about a mark on your hand and a mark on the forehead, you're gonna be thinking about the Shema. You're gonna be thinking about this declaration, this pledge of allegiance to God and God alone. So, this Revelation 13 passages here, that this beast causes people to be marked on the right hand and on the forehead, 
what we can be pretty sure of in the way that I think scripture wants this passage to be read and kind of demands this passage to be read is that as John is seeing in the Holy Spirit, he's seeing this vision. What he sees is he sees a sea of people who have pledged their allegiance, not to God, but to this beast, to the way that this beast operates, because they have his name, the creed, on their hand and on their forehead. And this beast, we hear in the Revelation, this beast kind of terrorizes the world, and the beast gains power and gains wealth at the expense of other people, that it crushes those who are weaker than it in order to become stronger, that it hurts and harms and builds this excess of wealth for itself on the backs of others, on the backs of slaves and of laborers. So this beast, this way that these people are following and pledging their allegiance to the beast means that they're following the beast in its path. They're following the beast and not Jesus. So Revelation 13, the mark of the beast is not that you have a barcode on your arm, but it's actually this conscious or unconscious um, agreement with and pursuit of beastly things, of wealth at the expense of others, at, uh, of, of power at the expense of others. When we are angry with others and we try to win others over by violence and argument, when we feel the, the joy that somebody got hurt or sick that we don't like, that's the way of the beast. We're following that beast all the way there and we're pledging our allegiance to the beast. That's the mark. It's not a vaccine, but it's pledging your allegiance to gaining wealth and gaining power by hurting and harming other people, by crushing those who are weaker than you in order to become stronger. Pledging our allegiance to Jesus, on the other hand, means self-sacrificing means giving up good things for ourselves so that others can have good things. It means being generous with our time and our money and our goods. It means supporting and helping others by speaking charitably to them and encouraging them to be better. So, what do these kinds of passages mean? There are lots of passages that are very confusing in Scripture. And the only way for us to really get a grasp on them is by diving into the deep end and swimming. The only way to really get used to a roundabout is to start using it. The only way to get used to harvest time is just by living in the community and getting used to the allergies every September. It's just about being present and being active in that culture and in that thing. So if we want to know Revelation, we really need to know the rest of Scripture. And it's going to be tempting for us to believe all these different things if we're not aware of the richness, the tapestry that Scripture gives us of all these interweaving stories and poems and these references and these types of things. So the question here with Revelation 13 and the Mark of the Beast, the question is, where does our allegiance lie? Does our allegiance lie with the way of the beast? Are we going to use violence and overpowering? Are we going to use harsh words to get our way? Or are we going to follow Jesus 
Are we going to serve those who have been given to us, that live next door to us, that live in, on our street? Are we going to love and serve them by helping them when they're in need? Are we going to serve our community by loving those who are weaker than us, who are less fortunate than us? Are we going to sacrifice others for our good? Or are we going to sacrifice ourselves for the good of others? This is the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord has offered before us. Some of us may have the mark of the beast. I don't know. I can't tell. But we do know that the Lord loves us and he forgives us. That there's always an opportunity at the Spirit's prompting to pledge our allegiance to Jesus, to follow his way, and to go the way of life and not the way of death. Yeah.